and open them to the book of Genesis. If you would like to use the Pew Bible, it should be located somewhere on your uh, row there. You could turn to page two. Uh, just a couple pages in, into the Bible two, page two. We're going to look at, we're going to read, start out reading this morning, we're going to read Genesis 2, 7, and then skip down to 18 and read through 24. So, so Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, at last, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we appreciate your word. We are so thankful for it. It gives us life. It gives us understanding. It straightens us out. It gives us hope. It points to you and to our future glory. So, Lord, use it this morning to open our eyes that we may understand it and believe it and respond to it and embrace it by faith as we walk in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know that some of you might remember these impressive words. Mowage. Mowage is what brings us together today. Mowage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream, and love, true love, will follow you forever and ever. So treasure your love. And what is interesting about these words from the impressive clergyman is that in the Princess Bride, as sincere as that impressive clergyman may have meant them to be, they really meant nothing on that occasion. What do I mean by that? Well, if you haven't seen the movie, you should, because it's an old classic. But you know, if you saw it, that Prince Humperdinck really did not truly love Buttercup Diddy. Nope, she was a trophy for him, a beauty that he actually wanted to possess. He did not love her. Did Buttercup love the prince? Oh, no, 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 no. She loved the farm boy named Wesley, who was now a pirate, but he was dead, or at least she thought. And so there was no hope for her. She was brokenhearted at these words. There was simply no real reality to them, no truth to them. 
So as we turn our attention today to uh, real wedding ceremonies, do you think that there is an understanding of the spoken words that the bride and groom make to one another? Do you think that many in our culture, or even dare I say our church, understand the significance of the institution of marriage? Today, we're going to begin a short series to understand marriage from the Creator's perspective. Now, notice what I said. From the Creator's perspective. If there is a Creator, should we not know what His perspective is concerning marriage? Sure we should. Do we not think that's important? So if we look at this series, it's going to be a foundational series, a creator-honoring Christian worldview focus that has a profound way of life understanding for everyone. So here, it doesn't matter if you're married, if you're widowed, if you're unmarried, if you're old, if you're young, if you're a a child, it makes no difference. This is a foundational understanding. And so in other words, it makes the world make sense to us. The Lord desires us to have a foundational understanding of the institution of marriage, for it is the basis of society in the world. So today, our focus is to understand the current problems within marriage in the church and the world, and then secondly, to understand the Creator's foundation of marriage that we may live rightly as His people. So let's consider first of all an understanding Uh, of the state of marriage and the need concerning the institution of marriage. So as we think about the state of marriage in the nation and in the church, Hebrews 11.10 comes to mind to me. It says, For he, Abraham, was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now a city is not only a place with skylines and, and buildings, It is a multitude of families. As a matter of fact, Silas and I were driving yesterday and we were talking about the city. And he said, is this a city? I said, absolutely it's a city. It's a city because city is where a large gathering of people are. So one could say that a family is, is a unit that makes up a city, that makes up a society, that makes up a nation. Not to mention, it makes up a church. And so here, the Scriptures say that Abraham was looking for a city whose architecture and builder is God. And though there is a glorious future aspect to this, we all hope for, there is also a now aspect as well. For God is the architect and the builder of the family, and therefore the family begins in the institution of marriage. However, We all know that the currents in our society are eroding the foundations of the marriage institution. Michael Jones in his book, he's a Catholic scholar, E. Michael Jones, and he wrote a book called Degenerate Moderns. And he shows how some of the major determining leaders in modern thought and culture have rationalized their own immoral behavior and projected it upon the cultural landscape over a period of many years. Their views, he believes, are often mere reflections of their own sexual antics and misbehavior. His book is very fascinating. With this intellectual um, rationalization being projected on the culture at large and our society, 
And even the church, it, 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 those situations, those society areas, those particular people groups then become disintegrated in their understanding of marriage. Dave Carter, in his book called Torn Asunder, notes this. Listen to this. In the general population, some reports suggest that an astounding 50 to 65% of husbands and an equally shocking 45 to 55% of wives have had, an, had, have had extra marital affairs by the time they are 40. Statistics within the Christian community are more difficult to come by due to the shame placed upon such behavior by those circles. Christianity Today, however, found in a survey that 23% of the 300 pastors who responded admitted to some form of sexually inappropriate behavior. Now that book came out in 1992. Do you think things have changed? Do you think things have gotten for the better? If you pay attention to the culture around you, you know that the sad commentary on these statistics is that they are no longer shocking. For example, the quote here, and I want you to pick up on this, the quote here lists the findings as sexually inappropriate behavior. Now, you may think, well, what's wrong with that? I'm telling you this. I just read a book on this topic, and it's very interesting. Words that we use today to describe stuff like this are soft-pedaling sin. For example, the word inappropriate is a term that has to do with not being suitable or proper in certain circumstances. So it's like really using the wrong fork at a dinner party. Do you see how we soft-pedal this? It's inappropriate sexual behavior. No, it's wrong. It's sinful sexual behavior. But let's not speak of that because that would be too harsh. But that's exactly how God speaks of it in His Word. So adultery, as well as other forms of sexual sin, has been woven through the fabric of our culture as academia and the pop culture media has pressed aggressively to seek to glorify sexual sin to where it is today, and that is pretty much just normal. God's Word has been regulated to being ancient myth when it comes to the expression of sexuality. And I hope it doesn't shock you to see that it, God's Word does not become regulated to ancient myth when it comes to things like not judging people or being tolerant. The, the Word of God's brought up all the time. Or how about bringing refugees into the country? Oh, God's Word says... Now, I'm not poo-pooing either one of those ideas and those thoughts. Those things need to be worked through carefully. But it is amazing how the culture will pick and choose what they want to out of God's Word and say, Thus saith the Lord. All of Scripture speaks to His truth. And so we need to understand all of it and work through all of it as His people. Now, it's one thing for the non-Christian world to have alternatives to God's will. But it's another thing to say the same thing of the church, of the Christian community. The, the psalmist in Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Hear that. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
This seems to be where we are today in our Christian communities, wondering about the state of marriage. And actually, there's, the truth is that the church throughout the ages has struggled with this. Time and time again, the church forgets what the Lord says, or it turns a blind eye, and I think that's probably more the case. The church doesn't forget. It turns a blind eye to what God has taught about marriage. We always struggle as God's people to make marriage to be what we want it to be and not what God says it is and what it's designed to be. So we need to be careful. We need to be wise. And that brings us obviously to our second reason of the genesis of marriage and God's design and plan is extremely important. We, the church, need biblical foundations. We need biblical foundations for life and worldview. So again, this series shall take a look at the foundation, that original foundation of marriage as instituted by the Creator. It will focus on the basic biblical foundations of marriage. And hopefully this will provide a, a, a basis for truth and a right foundation for marriage that is centered and focused upon Christ. I also pray as we unpack this foundation that you will see that the, the Bible, God's very word, calls us to understand His foundations for all of life. For Christians, all of life is to be lived and to be governed by Jesus Christ if we are indeed in Christ. To be in Christ means that He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our King. And He has called us to understand His Word and to put it into practice. We, in the men's Bible study on Thursday, we were studying about the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the picture of God's presence. And God told His people, I will be with you. And He told them to put the tabernacle in the center of the camp. Why would you think He would do that? Three million people around this tabernacle. Why? It signifies that He is central to who they are and what they're about. That He is central to their salvation. That He is central to the glorious plan that He's unfolding to take them to a land and to fill it. So let us think about that as we get to our second point here and as we get to what we're going to focus on. He is the center. And so we need to understand the Creator's foundation of marriage. We need to understand the Creator's foundation of marriage. Now the first thing that I want to tell you about this is, is essentially that marriage wasn't uh, devised by mankind. It wasn't created by mankind somewhere along the way in the course of human history as a convenient way of sorting out living with one another or responsibilities for children or to have a better tax situation or whatever else you may think of. The original aspect of creating marriage is that God Himself established it. He ordained it from the beginning of history. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this in his recordings on marriage. He says this, There are three human institutions that stand completely apart from others because they did not evolve out of human thinking. The family, the church, and the state. The family, the church, and the state are all instituted and created by God. 
There is nothing in the Bible about schools. I'm sorry, children. We have schools today, and you're to obey your parents, but God doesn't say. You see what I'm saying? Sorry, parents. I'll try to help you out with that later. God did not set up community centers and say, hey, go to the community center and hang out. You know, God did not set up art galleries and say, oh, this is wonderful. He didn't do that. He did set up the idea of the family, the church, and the state. God does not um, govern or regulate things such as schools and community centers or art galleries because God did not invent them. God invented marriage. And when you enter into a marriage, you enter under His authority whether you will or not. That's how Keller puts it, and that's how we need to think about it. It's God's institution. That's why it's important in the American discussion that we're having now. This is not something made up by man. This is God's institution. It's supposed to be the way He created it. So God Himself is again the architect and the builder of marriage. Therefore, to properly understand marriage and to deal with the problems today, one must go back to the beginning, literally to Genesis. So let's walk through the text. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to walk through the text. And I'm going to kind of speak some things about it as we go along. And we're going to see the creation of man. And then we're going to see the giving of a blueprint. So let's start with this creation of man. So if you'll find Genesis chapter 2, you can follow along as we go. It draws the reader close to us to see the greater details of, of the crown of his creation of man and woman. So look at verse 7. Then the Lord God formed a man uh, of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now I want you to think about this. What did he do with that man? What, he created this man. And so what did he do with him? The text says that he created a garden. He planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there is where he put the man he had formed. So what does this garden look like? Look at verse 9. It states that out of, the gar- out of the ground, the Lord God made up to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out um, of Eden into water, the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And if you skip down to verse 15... The Lord God took man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You must surely not eat. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So this is man. A male human being who was created. And what does, he, what does God do with him? He puts him in a beautiful garden. Now, if you look at that passage, I want you to think about it just for a minute. What, what did he have in the garden? He had a good place. He had a garden of Eden. I mean, think about it just for a moment. No thorns, no thistles. Beautiful fruit. I mean, can you imagine ladies not having, or men, there may be some men here that do this. I've got a friend, he fixes dinner every night. But can you imagine not having to cook dinner every night? Some of you go out all the time anyway, so this doesn't apply to you, right? It, but he's in a garden, he's, he has fruit around him, he has, he has it. 
The next thing he has, he has good water. There's a river that becomes rivers. I can almost see it. It's got to be spectacularly beautiful. He is, again, that good fruit to eat from the trees. He has a good job. He, he gets to tend the garden. And again, he's not pulling wheat. He's just tend, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know. But he's tending the garden. He's living in the garden. It's, he's working, and it's not part of the curse. It's beautiful. It's a wonderful thing. He has things to do. He is a good God. How do we know that? Because he told him what he could do and what he couldn't do. He, he gave him exactly the, 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 the situation in which he was in. Eat of everything. Don't eat of that one tree. So what do you do with a man then who has it all? I mean, think about it. He's got it all, right? He has the good place, the good water, the good food, the good job, the good God. What does he need? What's interesting in the passage is that he doesn't even realize he has a need. He doesn't know that there is actually something incomplete. And so God brings it up. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. So think of it this way. Divine intention proved that something was not right with man's situation. It's not good that man should be what? What is the word here? Alone. The basic word uh, in Hebrew, uh, or the root of this word alone, could be pictured as something like this. If you went out and you cut a limb from a tree, and you cut it off, and you were to say, this limb, it's not good for it to be alone. That's what we would say. It's not good for it to be alone. But if we took other limbs from the tree, and we kind of bunched them up, and we put it with it. The word we would use here is separated. It's not good for the limb to be separated from the tree. It's going to die, actually. So this is the picture here in Hebrew of this word. It has the idea of being incomplete, of being apart, of being separated, of being alone. And that is what God is saying. It's not good for that to be the case with this man. So what does he do? So as we pay attention to verse 18 and continue looking at that verse, he says it is not good that man should be alone. And so what does he do? I will make a helper fit for him. A helper. What kind of a helper? A helper fit for him. The NAS has suitable for him. So we could look at words like corresponding to him. A helper compatible for him. What's interesting is, is this word is used 19 times in the Old Testament. 16 times it, it's, it's used in reference to God. So you just see this, this divine helper that the Lord has created here. And so look at verse 19 as we keep looking. So out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and He brought them to the man to see what He would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. He's not just naming them here. He's, he, God is putting him in an act where He's discovering something. God is saying, look at that horse. Does, does that correspond to a helper to you? Does that correspond to, to a, a companionship for you? Well, not totally. What about a dog? I mean, Jay could speak to this. We, he loves dogs. His dogs are awesome. And so you would think of this dog as my companion, but it doesn't quite fit. It's not the same. There's something missing here. This is not right. 
And so as we look at the end of verse 20, it says, But for Adam, there was not a found a helper for him. None fit, no, not one. Do you wonder? Do you wonder here? What could possibly a good God do in a situation? Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken out of the man, he made into what he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is... This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. As the old commentator Matthew Henry says, she stands at his side as part of him, her own soul bound with his. She shall be called in Hebrew, I love this word, Isha. She shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of man, Isha. Isha, the female form of Ish, man. It's like lion and lioness. This is what it means. Woman was taken from the form of a man. Isha, taking from Ish. As Adam said, finally, at last, one like me. I am completed. That's what he's saying here. I am completed. And do you know what this is? Do you see what this is? Every wedding we go to, we see it. It is the gift of a bride given to man. That is creation. That is a married couple. It is meant to be beautiful. Now it did not end here. The passage doesn't stop there and say, and they all lived happily ever after. It doesn't do that. God actually gives them a blueprint for marriage together. He, he basically says, okay, this is how it is to function. This is what it is to look like. And so as we move to this idea of a blueprint, or maybe we could call it an application for marriage, if you will, God summarizes the blueprint in three words. If you take these three words as God's blueprint for your marriage, and you pray asking God to build your marriage His way, and you work hard at it by the power of the Spirit, it will get better toward the goal that God has chosen for marriage. What is it? Look at verse 24. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So did you see the three? The first one is this. Leave your mother and father. You are to leave them. The relationship with your parents should be the most beautiful relationship. One in which you do not want to leave because of the relationship. But God says to leave that. Why? Because, think of it, marriage is the most important relationship that's ever been created. More important than your relationship to your friends. More important than your co-workers. More important than your fellow students, your boss, your best friend, your parents, even. There is only one relationship that should be above your relationship with your spouse. And that is your relationship with the Lord God Almighty. Do you think that people believe that in this world? 
Do you think that we in America believe this? How about the church? Do we believe this? That the marriage relationship is the most important relationship. You know, and sadly, and my wife will tell you right now, it's probably, I mean, I have to confess, our marriage will suffer because it gets second all the time. And it should be first. That's why I hate preaching sermons on marriage because I know how terrible I am at it. You can talk to my wife later and she'll confess all those things about me to you, not about her. It is the most important relationship, and we have to believe that because that's what the Scripture says. That's how He designed it. And it's the fabric of our society. It builds our nation. And you think about how the erosion is happening all the time. The second thing, we, the word we see here is cleave or hold fast to your spouse. This picture here is like stick together like glue. You're supposed to stick together like glue. Um, What do those great traditional marriage vows say? As long as we both shall get along. As long as we both shall find spice in our physical relationship. As long as we shall not get along with someone else better. That's not in the text, is it? It's not there. I don't see it anywhere throughout the Bible. But what I do see is, is what the vows actually say in the traditional sense, which is that we, we will be together as long as we both shall live. The marriage institution is the only permanent human relationship God established on this earth. And again, you have to think of it in terms of that not your, your general friendships, your besties, your best buds, your co-workers, your teachers, your pastors, and even your children. Again, we have to repeat that. Marriage is the only permanent relationship. And so what he says here is cleave to one another. Hold together like glue. One of the first things that I cover when I meet with with young people, and Jason Taylor could tell you this as well, is that I say, remember, there is no such word as divorce in your marriage. I want you to think about that. Because if that's even in your mind, it's not good to begin with. Think of it in terms of, you know what, I love this person to death right now, but uh, in about six months to a year from now, we might be struggling, and it may be hard, but I'm going to hold on as tight as I can. Now, I know that every situation does not work out that way. And sometimes that is not your fault. But this is the original design. This is how it is designed. And so hold on. Hold on to one another. Hold, and that's, that's it. Hold fast. Because it's hard in this world. And again, sometimes the other person lets go. And, and that breaks God's heart. But you keep trusting the Lord. The third one that he has down here, the, 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 the word that he has is become one flesh. And the reality of that is this marriage is to be the most intimate, the most complete, the most total relationship that there is. There's no other relationship like it. There can be no other relationship like it. A married couple are to be so intimately related that they function as one for the glory of Him. So what... The Lord gives us a Dr. Hatch. Chris and I took a class of most of the stuff comes from because it's just ingrained in me from when we were first married. 
But Dr. Hatch used to talk about this, as if you have two people like this, and you say, go and do something together. Well, what, how do I do it? How, how does this work? What, how does this go together? You are to fit together to where you fit as one. That way you can do the work that you need to do together. You can help one another. It's a beautiful picture of oneness. To become one flesh. To so work together that you're one unit and not two. One unit, not two. So we have it. Remember, uh, leave your mother and father. Hold fast to one another. Stick like glue and become one flesh. If you look at it today in America, for example, and in the world, and, and really, once you begin to read the Bible after Genesis chapter 3, okay? It's in the Bible too. It's all over the Bible, all right? Once you begin to read that, once you look around us, what you see is, is that uh, marriage is, is far more utilitarian. It's far more a secondary relationship. It's based on services. It's based on convenience. But the model from the very beginning was not like that. It was intrinsic. It was to be, the marriage couple were to be so intimate related that they functioned together again as one. Even Christ spoke of this as Bert read in our passage this morning. So the question then as we think about this in this very first sermon is this. What is separating you from the truth of God's Word on this matter? And if, and if this is how you think about marriage from this point of view, then praise the Lord. But for so many people around us, they don't think in this way. But this is solidly biblical. We have gone through the text. We have looked at it. That God created marriage. That he has a specific plan for it. So do you think your children know about this? You know, your children are sent mixed messages all the time. So make sure that they know what this, this, this Scripture speaks of. What it speaks to. Begin to talk to them about it when they're young. Grandparents, help, help parents in that church. Help one another in this. Begin to talk about these things when kids are young. So that they don't have the mixed ideas that they understand it. The world, I still remember talking to someone about this. The world will, will look at you and say, you're brainwashing your children. Let them make up their own mind. But the world brainwashes our children. I mean, that's ridiculous thinking. I want to be the one to tell my children how to think and behave. Not, I don't want the government telling my children that. I want to. And so do that. Take the time to do that. Um, be a person that is able to speak to others about this particular uh, focus from the Creator. Don't be afraid to share what the truth is. Do it in love, but don't be afraid to share it. And, and, and I guess thirdly I would say is, you know, we need to embrace this understanding of truth as the church. And we need to model it. Again, it's sometimes it's difficult because it's not always, you know, we may be a person that's holding on tight in the relationship, but the other person is not. We can't control them. 
The Lord has a word for them. And so we trust Him. And when we fail, we turn to Him and we get forgiveness and we seek Him and we get back on the path wherever we are. That's what we're called to do. God is a God of forgiveness. He is, listen to me, He is one that says, I will restore the, the, the years that the locusts have eaten. I remember when I read that one time and I was really struggling with some sin in my life. I looked at that and I thought, God, thank you. Restore the years that the locusts have eaten in my life. So trust in His grace with that and know that He's good. There are specifications all throughout the whole of Scriptures. And so let's get it straight in our minds and our hearts that this is the ultimate reality of marriage as the Creator created it. Let the Word of God and His Spirit build in your marriage. And you will see a picture and a portrait of heaven. Because behind the scenes, after Paul quotes this verse in 24, and after this he says, there's a great mystery here. Because ultimately what's going on is is that marriage is to be a picture of Christ and His relationship with the church. It's a gospel picture. That's why God wants the church so strongly to be about that gospel picture. You know that He gave His life for you. You know that He came to die and give His life for your sins out of His own sacrificial love. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is the genesis of marriage. The creation of marriage is a reflection of His sacrificial gospel love for you. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your love and mercy to us. Thank You for bringing us this truth. It's very foundational, but we need to hear it. We need to wrestle with it. We need to understand that it is true. And so teach us, your church, to submit to this, Lord. Father, forgive us where we failed. Um, Forgive those who failed us. Father, help us to learn to live in Your grace. And, and Lord, where we are, we're careful to encourage one another and grow one another in love is this, that it takes us a lifetime, Lord, to, to, to be sanctified and to, and to grow in the image of Christ and to understand and to become so intimate with Your Word that we put ourselves under it. And so help us, Lord, not to dwell on the past where we have failed and where we have uh, been failed by others, but let us look to You now, right now, here today, with all Your hope that You will restore and make all things new. Father, even if that means just our understanding of marriage, Father, help us to begin from this day, this moment on, to follow you in this. That the church would ultimately be a great and incredible picture of Christ and His relationship with the church. Thank you, Father. We praise you. We love you. And we receive you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand as we prepare hearts for the table.
This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world, I rest in and sees his hand the wonders wrought. This is my Father's world, the birds their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare their Maker's praise. This is my Father's world, I hear him pass, he speaks to me everywhere. This is my Father's world, oh let me never forget, that though the wrong seems of so strong, God is the Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's now affirm our faith uh, through this new city catechism. Question number 24. Why, brothers and sisters, was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring back to God. By substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. Amen. Praise be to his name. You may be seated. And that is the picture that we have as we think and we reflect on what we've just heard in the Word in terms of Christ. The, the marriage, institution of marriage being a, a picture of Christ and His bride, we can rejoice in the truth that He came to save us. That He came to rescue us. And He does that, if you think about it, not by jerking us by the collar and saying, be saved. He woos us. As a lover would a young maiden. It's beautiful. It's glorious that He would give His life for us and set us free to, to think about it, to be free.